and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso, and this episode will be all about India. I'm here with Ian Herbison. He's the CEO of the Speyside Group, the leading global emerging markets, corporate affairs and public policy specialists. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ana Paula. Good to be with you. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Emerging Markets today. And um, I'm very excited because this is the first episode about India I have here on the, on the podcast. And I've been meaning to do that. I did about Brazil, I did all about um, China a little bit and all the like big emerging markets, but not India. Well, today's the day. <laughs> yeah, today's the day. Today's the day. Now, we had a prep call before and we were talking about India's golden decade. India is entering a golden decade. I thought there was a golden decade already happening there. So what's happening now? What's different? Yeah, well, it's interesting because it has been the last decade, uh, 10 years of strong growth in India, but there's a real buzz at the moment around about the next decade. And um, I think with some justification, you know, India has a huge opportunity, I guess, from two different perspectives. One, as a growing domestic market with a growing middle class coming up, 1.3 billion people in India. So huge opportunities there in different ways. But secondly, um, as as an increasingly important part in, in, in global supply chains. And so... Um, you know, I'm excited. Um, I can, uh, do you want me to dig into some of that stuff? <laughs> yes, yes, please. But I just want to do a quick disclaimer. So this is not, this, I always say that this is not an investment advice. If you guys want to know about, you know, where to invest, not just listen to me, listen to other podcasts, read about it. We just talking about different aspects of India economic growth. Just going back what you said here about the supply chain, the diversification of supply chain away from China. It's, it's, it's a hot topic. And I think, you know, firstly, because we've been through COVID over the last few years, and I think that really brought into sharp focus the extent to which um, many global manufacturers are reliant on on China and the Chinese supply chain. And when there are restrictions um, in that market, which there still are today, uh, given their zero COVID policy, um, that's very problematic. And secondly, obviously, the geopolitical situation we have at the moment with growing tension between China and many parts of the West particularly. And so I think there's a huge opportunity here for India and people have been talking about it for some time, but in my conversations with um, uh, people responsible for Asia and global business, we're really starting to see more and more concrete opportunities. I guess the hottest or the most focused sector is around semiconductors, uh, you know, at the moment, Taiwan and China. Can you give us an overview? I've been following a little bit what's been happening with China and Taiwan, but for someone that is not too familiar with what's been happening, can you just give us a quick explanation? And why this is so important? Why it's so important? I mean, I, I guess the simple way to look at it is that 
Um, obviously, as a society, as an economy, globally now, um, much of that is digital. And one of the key, if not the key component to making all that digital society and economy work is equipment that rely on semiconductors. And, you know, we, um, it's always been the case or long been the case that um, so much of that, particularly the advanced technology is produced out of Taiwan um, and out of mainland China. Um, and at the moment, given the geopolitical tensions, there, there is a lot of focus uh, in a number of ways. You know, we've just seen the US pass a bill, a so-called CHIP Act, to try and encourage investment and manufacturing of semiconductors in the US. But India is also, you know, key, key to this as, as global manufacturers, particularly in the West, say we need to secure our, uh, our supply of semiconductors in a world where, where increasingly there's barriers between uh, sourcing material from, from China. And we've seen, just even in the last week, we've seen an announcement between the Vedanta Group, one of the very big Indian industrial groups, and Foxconn. Um, and Foxconn are, you know, probably the world's biggest OEM manufacturer of electronic equipment, supply a lot of uh, Apple, um, for example. Um, and Vedanta and Foxconn are forming a joint venture in Gujarat, in the, in, in the Indian state of Gujarat, and, and investing huge amounts in a, in a mega factory to produce semiconductors. And there are other developments as well, three, four other announcements looking at uh, manufacturing of semiconductors in India. And so, you know, it points, and it's not just semiconductors, it points to a general shift or a diversification, which started, I think, you know, people, even people like Nike going back many years, shifting some manufacturing out of China and down into Vietnam. But now we're seeing more and more of that coming into India. Yeah, yeah, yeah they made big headlines, you know, the Foxconn, uh, partnership and I think I've seen one headline say they want to build a new Silicon Valley in in India. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we've heard uh, we've heard of many people wanting to build a new Silicon Valley and no one's quite done it yet in different parts of the world. But there's no doubt that you know India under Prime Minister Modi is very very focused on what it calls its Make in India strategy which is, um, on the one hand, providing significant incentives, uh, empowering organizations such as Invest India to attract foreign investors into India, so making it more attractive on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, frankly, uh, raising tariffs, raising non-tariff barriers to the import of products that, that the government believes should be manufactured domestically. So. Yeah. There is a policy, um, I think you mentioned, but I read it before as well, the Made in India policy. Yes. So Modi yes. wants to bring this mindset of companies and using Indian manufactured products. Yeah. And you're seeing that right throughout the chain. So, I mean, another reason why there's real investment and hopes for growth in India is that there's a huge need for infrastructure investment in road, in rail, in ports, in airports, in power, um, big moves in renewable power. Um, and a lot of that is being driven by domestic companies, but the supply chain, the equipment, the supply, the services 
you know, there's big foreign investment going into those sectors, capital investment from institutions, pension funds globally going into those sectors. So that combined with the made in India strategy, or sorry, the make in India strategy, um, is, is really uh, stimulating growth domestically. So I think there's a whole area there. And then there's the other piece we mentioned, which is the, the huge sort of domestic uh, um, uh, market, uh, 1.3 billion people, and a lot going on around digital in innovation, for example, and upgrading products and services. Exactly, yeah. And so digital innovation is something I've, I've read and write, written a lot about on emerging markets today as well, especially in fintech, in payment solutions, but move to a mobile payments landscape. Yeah, I mean, so India has, I mean, on the one hand, some of the big tech players, particularly in um, e-commerce is the, the, the obvious example where you have um, uh, an Amazon joint venture, where you have a Walmart joint venture. Um, there's been huge investment and growth in, in, in that area. Um, but as ever with India, it takes its own unique path. So on payments, for example, the government has put in a national payments infrastructure, national digital payments infrastructure that is uniquely Indian um, and that um, um, you know, is, is designed for interoperability, for low cost, for ease of access across a very diverse country, uh, sort of open source architecture. And you've seen a lot of domestic players um, develop technology on that. Um, the, one of the very biggest was Payton. Um, and, and that's a really interesting story, firstly, because of its growth. Um, and it went through a huge IPO, valued at a huge number. But it's also interesting because the price or the value of that has collapsed post-IPO as people start to say, okay, so you've built up an incredible user base for um, electronic payments, but how are you going to monetize that? Um, and it's much, you know, we're seeing this around the world. And I, think it's, I think it's a trend once uh, Unicorn goes public, like you've seen this in Nubank in Brazil, so they didn't have a great IPO. And there's no doubt there's going to be some pain as the sector shakes out, particularly I think fintech will see consolidation in India, but out of that will emerge big, strong companies. There's other, you know, Big question marks at the moment. India has been working on a, a set of legislation around data governance, which um, it actually drafted and redrafted 14 times and then withdrew from the last parliamentary session, just scrapped the bill entirely. But it's promised to come back with a new bill that will govern um, govern uh, everything from cybersecurity to, to, to e-commerce to other areas of the digital economy. Now, Again, India being India, they say they'll look around the world and, and, and take examples of practice from around the world, but they're looking at a uniquely Indian solution, which is, um, well, put it this way, the government has very strongly talked about big tech getting too much of its own way. So uh, there's a lot of people looking at this space and saying, okay, what does that legislative and regulatory framework, what's that going to look like? And 
These are the two sides of India, Anna. I mean, you know, you have the huge market, huge market opportunity, huge foreign investment coming in. And on the other side, you have a preference for domestic companies, um, uh, a situation where a lot of foreign investors are having to go into joint venture arrangements with the big domestic Indian groups. And you have a lot of uncertainty around some of the, um, the regulatory in, in, in environment and degree of political risks there. So these are the two sides the of the two Indian. sides, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we have some favorable um, situations for the economic growth, but also there is a downside uncertainty and some caveats, like you said. He wrote to me some caveats here, uh, which include things like unemployment and difficulty in doing business. It's something that is not just India, in my experience, as in most emerging markets, also Brazil is very difficult to make business there. You live there, I think you know that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I lived there during that, that so-called golden time, you know, where we were seeing 7% year-on-year growth. And of course, it was very positive, but that doesn't mean it wasn't complicated and it doesn't mean everyone, you know, was included in the benefits of that. And, and India is the same, you know, I mean, actually, um, just if you dig below the headlines, there's um, you know, reasonably high unemployment in India at the moment. And there's certainly a chronic issue with what we can call underemployment. So, you know, the classic example, you go into an Indian hotel and you have 10 times the amount of staff that you need because culturally the labor has been cheap and therefore you, you, you bring on board lots of people. And that's an issue in for productivity in the economy going forward. Um, it's an issue for society. There's a lot of difficulty still in the ease of doing business. Um, and I think, you know, to, to, without being cliched about it, there is no one India. I mean, again, you can draw parallels with Brazil. This is... Uh, There's um, no one Brazil, you know, definitely. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the, in India, there are over 20 states, and the majority of things are um, legislated and regulated and taxed at a state level. So when people are looking at coming into India, yes, you need to understand what's going on in the center, but you really need to get down to a state level um, and understand and build reputation and relationships at, at that level. So those are some of the, the, the complexities. Um, and I also, you can't overstate that there's now, particularly on, since Prime Minister Modi came to power, there's a number of you know, big national champions, big companies, industrial groups, um, um, you know, one controlled by the Adanis, the other by the Abanis, uh, um, which have um, uh, reliance industries. And actually the principles of those families are now, they've just both come into the top 10 or, or at least 10 and 11 in terms of the global rich list, which gives you an idea. You know, these groups are, in the case of Reliance, they're doing everything from sort of base industries through to completely transforming the, um, the mobile phone market um, uh, in India um, through new cost solutions. You know, in case of the, the Adanis, you've got uh, 
roads, ports, rail, power, mining, you've got huge conglomerates. And so another thing for certainly for foreign investors to look at and to consider is, okay, are these guys playing in the space I want to play in? You know, what does that mean in terms of competitive threat or in terms of regulatory capture or in terms of, of other things? Is there scope for partnership or, or, or how do you play that? But, you know, these and other reasons, India um, certainly has easy, huge opportunity, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the political instability is not a really unstable country, is it, politically? It depends how you look at the thing. I mean, on, 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 on the one hand, you know, Prime Minister Modi and the BJP um, uh, have dominated for some time now and in a sense of, you know, increasing their control on different levers uh, of, of power in the next elections in 2024, we would expect um, re-election of, of, of Modi. And, and part of that is just the huge machine that they've developed, the huge political machine at a grassroots level. And part of it's also the decline of the main opposition, the, the Congress party, which ruled India for, for many, many years uh, from, from independence. They've really declined as a force. And so for the time being, we see, you know, uh, um, continuation, continuity in the BJP government. There are new political forces coming through the uh, the AAP party, which has taken Delhi by storm and is now looking at moving into BJP strongholds like the state of Gujarat. But uh, no, no imminent change, um, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think there's one of big. Um big factors for economic growth. You have to have some sense of political stability. And then, and then now, Ian, comparing India with the rest of Asia, you have China next to it, you have Southeast Asia, uh, there are a few countries also becoming very prominent in the global landscape, like Indonesia, Vietnam to a certain aspect. And so how do you compare this range versus the rest of Asia? Yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, we keep going back to Brazil, funnily enough. Yeah, but that, go back, in some, that's fine. <laughs> in some respects, there's more points of comparison between India and Brazil than there is between India and, and lots of other Asian countries. I mean, let's put China to one side, right? Because we can't, it's a whole... You know, you've done you've done some good podcasts before, and then there'll be others in the future. But exactly, it'll be a whole new episode. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I think it's also difficult to compare India to the developed economies of Northeast Asia, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. But you know, it is interesting to look at South and Southeast Asia um, together. Um, you know, Southeast Asia. As individual countries, they don't have the huge domestic market that, that India benefits from. But the ASEAN uh, um, uh, agreement um, means that, that actually there's a high degree of you know, free trade area within, within Southeast Asia. Um, and it's growing through more and more and more regional, um, regional trade agreements being reached all the time. India is always an outlier, very reluctant to join in these trade agreements because it's reluctant to 
um, you know, to 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 open up its market in in certain sensitive sectors. So, Southeast Asia is is more um, open. Um, it's you know more of the traditional kind of liberal free market um, economy, and and if you drill into that, then there's there's huge differences. You know, Vietnam and Thailand are interesting, particularly the Vietnam-India comparison is interesting when it comes to global supply chains. And as I said earlier, a lot of companies, you know, started some years ago to diversify supply out of China, um, but many of them just came down a little bit into Vietnam, whether it be, you know, consumer goods or electronics. Um, um, now others are looking for all sorts of reasons of scale and geography, um, looking at uh, um, shifting supply chains further into India. But, you know, the dynamic between Vietnam and India is very interesting in that sense. The dynamic between... Yeah, I didn't know. What's the dynamic between India and Vietnam? I didn't know that. Well, you know, just in the sense of both of them you know, seeking to capture more of this, this piece of, of, of the global supply chain. But, you know, there's other, there's other sort of situations there. You have the Philippines, right, which is a huge provider of back office IT and services for global companies. And, of course, India is the number one back office IT um, and service provider, the call centers, as well as the data centers and all sorts of business process outsourcing. Um, and so, you know, there's an interesting point of, of comparison between the two, two countries. I think if you were to, you know, be playing a very crude game of comparing, I think the growth outlook, uh, the stability, the ease of doing business, uh, the ASEAN countries of Southeast Asia are probably ranking higher than India at the moment, but India is 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 fascinating just because of the scale of the opportunity and the transformation it's going to go through. And so, bringing it right round, you know, it's going to be tough, but I do think it's going to be a golden decade for India. Yeah. Yeah, I think that too. I'm really looking forward to it as well. And um, before we move to talk about yourself, Ian, and Speyside, is there anything else you want to? No, I mean, we could go on and on, but I know you I, I, I know you <laughs> like to keep the podcast to a certain length of time. So yeah, Well, we can leave. do a part two if you want. <laughs> We, we certainly can. We can. Like. We can yeah, do like yeah. a, a whole series if you want. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's definitely, I'm really looking forward to India's golden decade. And now it's time for you to talk about yourself, Ian, in your journey and a little bit of Speyside Group or the Speyside Group and what you guys do there. So how did you get involved with emerging markets? Well, it's it's funny, and we've talked about this briefly before, but, you know, in, in a sense, all my adult life, I've been involved in emerging markets. I actually, you know, studied in Prague in the in the early 90s, um, um, a, a subject called transition economics, which I don't believe exists as a subject anymore, but I started... What is that? Uh, it was about the transition from communism to, to the Western market economy. And um, which was a kind of, it was just a unique, fascinating time and place. I then went back and, and did a master's in Budapest at the um, um, Central European University in, in International Relations. And, 
Um, did work a bit in the UK, but quite briefly flying myself back out in Central and Eastern Europe, helping um, working around some of the big privatization processes that were going on, the big foreign investment deals that were happening. And uh, about, well, more than 20 years ago, um, started to work together with my partner, our chairman here at Speyside, Alistair McLeish, who'd also, he'd established a business in the early days of Central and Eastern Europe, doing pretty much what we do today, which is advising um, companies on corporate affairs and public policy. So helping them to understand the landscape, understand risk, um, understand stakeholders, and what the route is to build reputation, build relationships, and to, to shape the operating environment, whether that be mitigating risk or opening up new market opportunities. So we came together, I joined his business, we eventually together founded Speyside. And uh, we've been on the move ever since, yeah. And this was 20 years ago. That was, uh, so So 20 years ago, we started working together in Central and Eastern Europe. Speyside in its current form was established about 15 years ago. Um, so the, the bricks were still in the in the talks, which I already always, always had a slight problem with that phrase as ever. It's oversimplifying things. Yeah. So I started those early years, lived in Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, where else? Um, um, and uh, and then it, with Speyside, we moved to Latin America. We started organically building out. I lived in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, as we built the businesses there. And we're now across seven offices in Latin America and, and delivering work even broader than that. And then um, then came out to 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 Asia. Um, um, and I've been based in Singapore for some years now, as we build in South and Southeast Asia, particularly. And the final part of the business is supporting in um, uh, in in Africa. So we're really global emerging markets. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe we do uh, Africa, Africa's golden decade. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and if someone wants to know more about yourself, about this is the space side group, I'll put all the links in the show notes. But how ah, is the brilliant. best way to reach out? LinkedIn. So if you search on Ian Herbison, um, uh, my name on LinkedIn, and uh, I don't think there's more than one of us, but put Singapore if you get more than one. Or, uh, or go, you know, perhaps perhaps more informatively, go to the Speyside page on LinkedIn and look us up there. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely put all the links in the show notes. And thank you very much. Yeah, I think it was a very insightful overview of India. And yeah, it was a great episode. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you, Anna.